in Western philosophy, for example, we have the good, the true, and the beautiful. And everybody's heard of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and they're always mentioned as three. But why are they three? They're three because they each represent a first or second or third person perspective. In this interview, I'm joined by Ken Wilbur. Described as the Einstein of consciousness, Wilbur is a fascinating character who began a Zen meditation practice at the age of 11. An intellectual prodigy as a child, Wilbur briefly attended Duke University before dropping out to immerse himself in a rigorous and multidisciplinary self-education. With an IQ of 175, he is the most published philosopher alive and his 25 books have been translated into 30 languages. His work attempts to integrate all fields of human knowledge into one theory of everything, which he calls integral theory. This draws connections between fields as far-ranging as systems theory, evolutionary biology, anthropology, quantum mechanics, Jungian psychology, neuroscience, sociology, and Eastern mysticism. I could go on, but I think you get the picture here. One of the core frameworks in Wilbur's integral theory is the four quadrants, which this interview focuses on. If you're interested in a deeper dive after listening to this, you can learn more about Ken's work by going to integrallife.com. Okay, Ken, welcome to the show. Nice to be here. To get started, one of the things I wanted to ask you is when and how did you realize that you were developing a theory of everything? And was this your intention whenever you left Duke University? Yeah. Um, it wasn't really a, a, a terribly self-conscious desire or goal. But ever since I was about 15, or sometimes even earlier, I, I mean, I remember in like the fourth or fifth grade, when we started getting report cards, I got all A's. And I was looking at it and I was going, well, that's interesting. It was geography, mathematics, chemistry, biology, and, and they're all A's. But why are they all separate? I mean, why do I have an A in this thing and an A in this thing? And then what's the difference between this thing and this thing? They should all fit together. And I remember that becoming a really burning question for me is how do they all fit together? And as I continued going through school, I continued asking that question. And then I remember um, I got on to studying developmental psychology and that is now it's a, it's a very recognized discipline very widespread there are dozens of major modelers and contributors to child and adolescent and adult behavior and what they all found is that everybody goes through a series of stages of development and of course they each give them a different name so there's like pre-conventional conventional post-conventional post uh gene gepster probably gave them some of the most colorful names he called them the archaic stage the magic stage the mythic stage the rational stage the pluralistic stage and the integral or integrated stage 
And, and the more I looked at that, the more it became obvious that each one of those stages of development had a different worldview. It looked at the world differently. So it wasn't just that chemistry was different from biology, was different from algebra, was different from music. It was that each of those went through an archaic stage, a magic stage, a mythic stage. And when they were at those stages, they all looked essentially similar. So if you had a magic view of the world, and magic is a very, very early stage. It's right after the archaic stage. So it's a fairly primitive stage. And at that stage, the mind is not yet fully differentiated from the world around it. So the word you use to represent a thing is not clearly differentiated from the thing itself. So if you change the word, it's sometimes called word magic, then you actually change the thing. So in, in voodoo, for example, if you make a doll that looks like a person and you stick a pin in the doll, which represents the person, so it's a word or a symbol for the person, and you stick a pin in the doll, you'll actually make the person sit. That's what you believe. That's what word magic believes. So whether you're doing algebra or chemistry or biology or history, and you're at the magic stage, you'll tend to use the word magic. And so when you put all of those stages together, you got all of the worldviews that were possible. And that struck me as profoundly important. Because here is a way you could see how everything actually fit into one holistic big picture. Um, and when I came up with that, I became sort of semi-obsessed with developmental models. And I actually did a book called Integral Psychology, where I took over a hundred developmental models from around the world and I put them in charts in the back of the book. And what's amazing is that you can see each of the stages and how they resemble each of the other models version of the stages. So one might call the mythic stage conformist, another would call it conventional, another would call it concrete operational. Um, and these were, you can just see a hundred similar stages in the back of the book in these charts. Um, so that that sort of started to dawn on me when I was like 14 or 15. And then right at that same time, or when I was maybe 15 to 16, I had a profound spiritual awakening. Uh, enlightenment experience, what Zen calls a Satori. And it was really sort of new to me, but the essence of a Satori is that you feel you're one with everything you're looking at. And so you're one with the entire universe. And that's the classic mystical experience, a oneness with the ground of all being. Christians, of course, call it a oneness with God or more commonly Godhead because they don't want Godhead or this ground of all being confused with a particular Jehovah person. 
that's clearly a myth like Zeus or Apollo or Aphrodite. And they all live in this place called Olympus. And Jehovah, all li he lives in this place called heaven. But that's all nonsense. And so the mystics generally speak about Godhead, which is a head of God or a head of that mythic mess. Um, and so I eventually ran across this writer called D.T. Suzuki, who was a writer from Japan, and he was a basic Zen, fairly accomplished Zen student or even Zen master himself. And so he wrote books like with titles like Essays in Zen Buddhism, which was a three-volume set of books, a quite substantial treatment of Zen Buddhism. And as I read that, I kept running across this word Satori. And I, uh, of course, this, the whole concept was new to me, even though I'd recently had a Satori-like experience. What D.T. Suzuki was telling me is that that was a real experience. And that was the entire aim of Zen Buddhism, is you practice, you meditated to get a Satori. And you weren't a real Zen Buddhist until you had a Satori. And so I realized, hey, I'm a Zen Buddhist. I, I get this. This now makes sense. Um, and I then looked at the Zen models of what they themselves were doing. And the very famous one is called the 10 Zen ox herding pictures. And they're sent, the ox represents your real mind what Suzuki Roshi, not to be confused with D.T. Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi was a very famous Zen master who came to America and started the Zen Center of San Francisco. And he wrote books like Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. He was enormously influential and had a, a tremendous number of students, including myself. Um, and, but, um, the 10 Zen ox herding pictures, the ox represents what Suzuki Roshi called big mind, which is the mind that's one with everything. And there's only one big mind in the entire world. It, you have the same big mind as I have. It's the same as saying your real self is the same as my real self. We both have this witness that looks at when we're aware of ourself, like right now, if you're aware of yourself, I'm aware of myself. That's the small self. That's the self you can look at. That's the self you can be aware of. That's an object. But it's not the real subject. It's like, who is looking at this small self? Who is aware of this small self of mine? Well, that's a big self. That's a real self. That's a Brahman Atman. That's God. And wow, that's my big mind. And when I realized that, I've got a Satori. And I'm an honest to God send Buddhist. I mean, this is all working out great. And so, but I made a big mistake at that point because I just looked at the 10 stages of the 10 ox herding pictures and I confused those with the stages of development that the developmental psychologists use. So I saw archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, and integral as being a version of the 10 Zen ox herding pictures. 
but that's not it at all. So for example, the eighth Zen oxherding picture is just an empty circle. It's a nothingness. It's, it's a vast void, a vast emptiness. And that's a very high Zen achievement to realize as Buddhism has it, that the ultimate reality is an emptiness. It's not, it's void of any particular thing but it includes all things. It's the ground of all being. And that itself can't be qualified or characterized. It's empty. Because any word that you and I might use is makes sense only in terms of its opposite. But Godhead doesn't have an opposite. It's all-inclusive. And so you can't even use the word all-inclusive because that even makes sense only if it's contrasted with all-exclusive. And that God's not all exclusive, he's all inclusive, except he's not all inclusive isn't really an inclusive enough term. So the, the best thing is to have no ideas about God at all. And then you just rest in your pure awareness, which is your big one. So I had written several books up to that point um as i aged and went on into my early 20s and when i was 23 i sat down to actually write my first book and it was called the spectrum of consciousness and the idea was that each of these stages of developmental psychology was like a band in a spectrum they were different colors of the same stuff, the same electromagnetic source, but they were expressing themselves through different worldviews or different colors. And I strangely managed to avoid making any comparison with all of the mystical traditions, all of which I found had models that were very similar to the 10 Zen ox herding pictures because all of them had the same goal, which is discovery of your true self, of Godhead, of big mind, of oneness with the absolute entire universe. And I, I was astonished to find that just like all the developmental models, psychological models were similar, virtually all of the same stages and the mystical traditions were similar. So we had two different things going on here. And I would eventually call the mystical traditions the traditions of waking up and the developmental psychology traditions, the traditions of growing up. So that was when I first really started using the term integral. And I referred to what I was doing as integral psychology because what I was doing was pointing out the importance of the fact that human beings, wherever we look around the world and for however long we look in history, have always had two different versions of growing up or waking up. And if you look at the mystical religious traditions, which are almost always the first versions of the religion, because a waking up experience is what's known as a first person experience. And the first person means um, the person who is speaking, 
the viewpoint of the person who is speaking. So that's an I, a me, a mine, something like that. Then there's a second person, which is the person being spoken to. So that's a pronoun like you or thou. Um, and then third person is the person or thing being spoken about. So that's a he, she, they, them, it, or its. And as I was writing this um, book at that time, which was sort of my major breakthrough book, and it was called Sex, Ecology, Spirituality. And it's a monster. It's a big 800-page monster of a book. Um, but that's where I started to realize that there is a difference between waking up and growing up. And they didn't really fit together at all. You could be at virtually any stage of waking up and be at any stage of growing up. They They just didn't grow together they were usually quite different most people in the west uh, can be highly developed in the model of growing up so they can be at a rational pluralistic or even integral stage of development but virtually none of them have had a mystical experience they haven't gotten very far in the tens and ox herding pictures um, they haven't found the ox, their, their big mind. Um, and so I started at that point, I would get, um, I noticed that these stages, when it came to the growing up model, that the stages of growing up had, um, well, there were at least four different models, generally different models of growing up. And it turns out that they were referring to first person, second person, and third person viewpoints of the stages of growing up. And that's what I eventually called the four quadrants. And now I recognized what the four quadrants were because as I was looking at all these different models of growing up, they somehow sounded like they were vaguely going, talking about the same stages, but they were somehow really different, like archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, integral. That sort of sounds like an interior, something that you would think or a world you would have. But there were several stages in third person that were like um, Gerhard Linsky's stages of techno-economic development. And these are very real stages. They're the archaic stage, the hunting and gathering stage, the horticultural stage, which means agriculture done with a simple digging stick or a hoe. Then there's the agrarian stage, which is agriculture done with a heavy animal drawn plow and that came considerably after the horticultural stage and then after the agrarian stage was the industrial stage and then after the industrial stage and the informational stage now those are all very real stages and i included them in my overall scheme but they weren't at all the same as archaic magic mythic rational uh pluralistic or integral um 
And so I started to take each developmental scheme that I became aware of. I would write one of them down on those big yellow sheets of legal paper, and I would spread them out on the floor. And I eventually had basically a hundred of these yellow pages spread all over my apartment floor. I mean, just covered them. And each day I would walk by and I'd say, okay, what's the, how are these related to each other? Because they, even though they're very different, some of them are, are very different sounding, like horticultural, agrarian, industrial, informational, and archaic, magic, mythic, rational. Um, they do seem that they're covering similar types of, of advancement or evolution. Um, and one day it just dawned on me that several of these were dealing with an individual interior, um, like archaic, magic, mythic, rational, pluralistic, integral. Those turn out to be the stages of, for example, cognitive growth that we go through. And these were later verified by Piaget's studies. And he called them natural intelligence, pre-operational intelligence, concrete operational intelligence, formal operational intelligence, and then systemic intelligence. <clears throat> um, and so as I looked at all of my hundred pages, about half of them were stages of interior development and half of them were stages of exterior development, like our agricultural styles. But <clears throat> those weren't to be confused with the same identical stages as our interior psychological or cognitive growth. And so that gave me the first major distinction, which was inside versus outside or interior versus exterior. And when I finally got the second set of opposites that gave me four quadrants, this interior, uh, I, I wrote them all down on one sheet of paper and they turned out to be just four quadrants like that. And the upper, the left-hand quadrants were all interior stages. And the right-hand quadrants are all exterior stages. And about a month later, I was still looking at these because I, I wasn't just happy with them being divided into two major different groups. And it dawned on me that about half of them were also dealing with a singular or individual De developmental holon, what I called holon. Um, by that time, I was using author Kessler's invented the term holon. And he said, everything in the universe is a holon. And a whole, a holon is a whole that's also a part of a larger whole. So a whole letter is part of a whole word. A whole word is part of a whole sentence. Whole sentence is part of a whole paragraph. Whole paragraph is part of a whole book or magazine or something like that. Um, so this gave me four quadrants. The upper quadrants were all singular or individual holons. The upper left was an interior of a single 
organism, an individual organism. So a single human being or a single dog or a single worm, it didn't matter. That was represented by the upper left quadrant. And that was where um, Gepser's terms primarily applied. An individual human being goes through stages that are first archaic, then magic and word magic, then mythic, Zeus, Apollo, and so on, then rational, mathematics, logic, algebra, and so on, and then pluralistic, which is a postmodern, multiplistic set of worldviews. And then those are drawn together at the highest stage, the integral stage. Um, so the upper right was the objective individual view of a single holon. So you those went from quarks to atoms to molecules to cells to multicellular animals and that was entire tree of life going from amphibians to fish to reptiles to mammals to humans primates to humans and then humans themselves on their upper left went through archaic magic mythic rational pluralistic and integral forms of development um and then the lower quadrants were the collective or the plural so um so you'd have like systems theory would work with the lower right quadrant because that's the plural of atoms molecules cells organisms and so on they come together into like multicellular animals come together in ecosystems and they always exist there's always a plural every individual comes together with under other individuals of its type. And so atoms come together to form molecules, molecules come together to form multi-molecular cells, cells come together to form multicellular organisms, organisms come together into families, families come together into species, groups, and so on. So that's the lower right. And then the lower left is the plural of the individual interiors. So that's what we call culture, is a multiplistic collection of our individual interiors. It comes together to form an inner subjective cultural condition. Um, so that's also, uh, any group contains an I, and a you, so that's a second person. The upper left is the first person, the interior of an I or a me or a mine. And then lower left is, includes second person, you. And both the right-hand quadrants are exterior objective its. So a single atom is an it, um, a single ecosystem, a single planet, um, planets form when large molecular surfaces come together and then they form a huge planet 
and then planets come together into solar systems and solar systems come together into galaxies and so on. Um, so that was when I actually had a picture of what a truly integral framework looked like. And I thought it was very interesting that they did represent first person singular, second person, it's also singular, but I and you come together to form a we or an us or an ours. And then third person is an it or a he or she or they or them or an it or an its. And um, I thought that was interesting because these two different polar opposites, the inside and the outside, the interior and the exterior, and the singular or individual and the plural or collective, all of those first, second, third person pronouns were present in every major language that humans developed because words were representing real things. And so the pronouns were first person pronouns, second person pronoun and third person pronoun. And every language had examples of all of those. And of course, there you could go to fourth person, and there's actually Jane Lovinger, who has developed the most widely used model of developmental psychology, which she calls ego development. And she actually found that each of her major stages of development, she has seven, eight, or nine of these stages. Each of them added a, another person perspective. So she has first through seventh person perspectives that are each coming off of one of these seven major stages of growing up. Um, and that gave it a real sense of universality for me because I could see that these three or four quadrants, and because both of the exterior quadrants are exterior its, there's sometimes the singular upper right quadrant of atoms, molecules, cells, um, are treated as the same third person it. So, whether you have a planet or a star or galaxy, that's generally, they're all treated as third person it's. So I sometimes call those three, the first, second, third person, the big three, because they're found everywhere. In Western philosophy, for example, we have the good, the true, and the beautiful. And everybody's heard of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and they're always mentioned as three, but why are they three? They're three because they each represent a first or second or third person perspective. So the good represents how am I supposed to morally treat you, the second person. So it's a first to second person relationship. So that's the lower left quadrant. The true represents, generally speaking, objective truth of science, and science mostly deals with the right-hand quadrants, things that can look at objectively and impartially and therefore truthfully. And the beautiful beauty is in the eye, the first person of the perspective. And so 
the good, the true, and the beautiful are the second person, the third person, and the first person realities. And that really sort of started bringing the whole world together for me because every one of those perspectives were found in every single language that we had ever developed. And the languages that we developed were because we had different words that represented real things. So a tree represented a real tree, a mountain represents a real mountain and so on. And a first person pronoun represents a real existing reality called I, we, or I, me, or mine. And that's in the singular version. And then it's plural version is this inner subjective cultural we or us or ours. Um, and then third person, it represents uh, any truly object as an object separated from a subject. So every right hand holon is separated from the left hand holon. But all holons, and this is a assumption I came to make and is part of integral theory, every holon has four quadrants or the big three. So according to Whitehead, for example, even an atom has an interior, which Whitehead called prehension, which means feeling. So every atom has a small ounce of consciousness, a small amount of feeling or small amount of awareness. Even a quark and an atom have an interior of prehension. So each of them have a first person and they are themselves third person it's with a first person prehension. And naturally atoms come together. They come together to form molecules. So they have a sense, their senses of prehension are drawn together. And so a molecule is a plural of an atom. And so the atom's individual eye prehensions are interwoven in a big molecular weave. Um, so that started to draw the framework into a truly reality representing framework. So we have the four quadrants, upper quadrants are individual, lower quadrants are collective or plural, and each of those has a left-hand quadrant, an interior, and a right-hand quadrant, an exterior. Now, if you look at those, that means each one of those has a different type of epistemology and therefore a different type of ontology. So the epistemology for the upper left eye, we call that introspection. And it's a form of knowledge where we look within, we introspect, and we report what we see. We report all the objects we see in our subject. And that's basically known as introspection. The lower left, the we space, the I plus you, is known, the study of that is called hermeneutics, which means the art and science of interpretation. And we mostly know interpretation when we interpret one language into another, when we interpret German in French terms or French terms in English terms. That's what hermeneutics means. Um, but it also means you and I right now are interpreting 
what we each other say. And that's because we're interacting in this lower left quadrant. We form a we space as we talk. Um, and so that's a very real different epistemology. The right-hand quadrants all have what's known as, well, the upper right, the individual it, has what's called empiricism, which is sensory ob objective knowledge. And empiricism is thought to be the sort of one especially real epistemology. So we say we want empirical truth. We mean we want scientific truth. We want it confirmed. We want evidence for this belief. And the sequence in the upper right quadrant quarks to atoms, to molecules, to cells, to multicellular organisms. It's thought to be a, a really real series of events, whereas empiricists always question the reality of interiors. They question the reality of introspection. It's not a real knowledge. It's not real like an external atom or molecule is. Although what they overlook is Whitehead and many Western philosophers who are generally called panpsychists viewpoint that even an atom has prehension. It has an interior friend. So don't, don't knock down interiors too fast and you'll erase all atoms from existence. All atoms have prehension. They have a little spark of awareness, a little spark of consciousness. And that incidentally answers one of the most difficult problems in Western philosophy, which is often called the hard problem, and it's the relation to so-called mind and body. Well, mind is a spark of consciousness, and body is the exterior matter that it appears in. And the answer is every right-hand quadrant has a left-hand quadrant, because they all fit together. Uh, and so... Uh, a really, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but a really good way that I heard in your book, I think it was the the, the history of everything. Um, you, you you give the example of meditation. A really good way that I find that helpful was like to talk about, you know, on the left quadrant there, you have the subjective internal experience with a person deeply in the meditative state. But then also in the right quadrant, you've got the, the neural correlates of someone. That's if you right. put them in an fMRI scanner, you can actually see um, that right. activity happening, you know? That's right. And that's a the that's a very good example of the upper right and upper left quadrant. Because many people, of course, many present day scientists maintain that the mind is actually just the brain. And the brain is is it well, it looks like a crumpled grapefruit. And it's about that big, and you can actually cut your head open and see it as an object because it's an upper right sensory object and you can see it, it's right there. And anybody else watching that operation can also see your brain. So it's a real object, it's a real upper right reality. Um, but those objective realities have electronic states, they have alpha states, beta states, theta states, and delta states. Uh, delta state is a pure, formless, deep, dreamless sleep state. 
And when you're in that state, which by the way, is an upper left quadrant phenomena, because you're, it's something that your subjective mind is going through. And the mind doesn't look like the brain. Your mind doesn't look like a crumpled grapefruit. You can't see your mind like you can see your crumpled grapefruit brain. The mind is only known by introspection. You have to actually look within and then you'll see mental thoughts and ideas and images and states of consciousness. You'll see a deep dreamless, formless state when you're in deep dreamless sleep. When you're in a theta state, you're actually dreaming. There are real images going across your mind when your brain is in a theta state. But the brain itself is not experiencing a deep or a, a dream state. That's your mind. The brain is experiencing an actual theta electronic state. And that state can be seen objectively. It can be measured objectively. That's what we do with the EKG, um, electrocardiogram, EEG, um, electroencephalograph. And where they put electrodes on your forehead and your head, and they measure the electronic patterns that the brain is actually going through. And that's all correct. That's all brain states. They're not mind states. Mind states are also happening that are correlated with those brain states, but they're happening on the interior. You can only see those. You can't, the EEG won't measure what you're dreaming. It won't tell you what you're dreaming at all. It'll just tell you that there's a dream state going on. And to know what that dream state is, you have to see it from within. You have to look within. And of course, that's what you your mind is aware of what you're dreaming. So when you wake up, you can often remember what you were dreaming because you can actually see it and remember it. Um, but otherwise, the mind is going through stages of development from archaic to magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic to integral. And that's something that you can see by looking within. And it's not easy because you generally have to know what the stage is and what it's like and what it's made of. So, for example, if you study developmental psychology and you learn what an archaic mental state looks like and you learn what a, a magical stage looks like and you learn what a mythic stage looks like, then when you move from the magic stage to the mythic stage, you will know that when you look within, you want to look for mythic forms. You look for Zeus, Apollo, Mount Olympus, and so on. And when you see those, you'll recognize the mythic stage of development that you're at. But you won't be able to see any reason. If you're only at the mythic stage, you're not yet at the rational stage. But when you move into the rational stage, you'll start to think logically. You'll be able to do mathematics. You'll be able to do algebra. And you'll see how these algebraic symbols fit together in equations. 
And all of that you can see by looking within. You can't put an electroencephalogram on your head and see any mathematical equations. They just, they're not in the upper right quadrant. So they can't be electrically spotted. But those, those are two very good examples of how very different quadrants nonetheless always go together. Even though they don't look like each other, they don't sound like each other, they don't smell like each other, they don't taste like each other. Um, and that's a very real, important piece of information because you can do the same thing with each upper quadrant and its lower quadrant. So every time you find a planet, you're going to find molecules. But a molecule is not a planet. A planet is a collective exterior lower right phenomenon, as is a star, as is a solar system. They're all made of collective holons come together to form these larger holons. Uh, and, Ken, yeah. I think it'd be really cool now to, like, when, whenever the penny dropped for me on, on what the four quadrants is, it made me realize that you can almost take any phenomenon in the universe and you will see it then in multiple dimensions. You'll see, you'll see incredible depth to it because you're seeing it from right. these, these four different perspectives, right? But it seems that as human beings, we have a tendency, if we're not aware of this, to sort of usually have one quadrant that we might stick to. For example, a material scientist might stick to the, the top right. right. Someone who's really into psychology and spirituality, top left, for example. Right. So what I was wanting to ask you in this conversation is how can understanding this or how can the four quadrants help us understand something like, let's say something like cancel culture, like how can that be a, provide a useful lens on something like cancel culture? Yeah. Well, cancel culture itself is a subjective attitude that cancels whatever is supposed to be true. Mm. So it's an upper left quadrant phenomena, but every upper left phenomena has corresponding phenomena in the lower and right hand quadrants. So this canceling impulse that we generate with our brain comes together in, to form an intersubjective plural lower left phenomena. And that is the sum total of the whole cancer culture, cancel culture. That's what we call cancer culture, is several different minds all having a canceling attitude coming together and communicating this canceling subjective judgment that they've made. And while they're all doing that, they have a lower well, they have an upper right brain state that is um, a beta or an alpha brain state, which are the states that accompany actual thinking in the brain. And so if, if we did an electroencephalogram on somebody who's practicing a left-hand cancel culture, then we would see the corresponding brainwave patterns. Um, and of course, if you're 
a neuroscientist, you'll think that's the, what that's real. That's what's causing this cancel culture. But it isn't. I mean, when you cancel somebody, you're not going, well, beta altitude, beta altitude, beta altitude on you. That That's just not happening. It's cancel you. You're wrong. You're false. All upper left sensations or awarenesses. And then in the lower right, we still have to have some form of collective communication. And that's why cancel culture came into existence only with the computer and forms of social communication. And all of those social forms of communication are lower right, objective, plural, or collective events. They're all transmitted through electrical wires. They all show up on computer screens. That's all they are in the lower right is a series of computer communications. But without those commuter, computer communications, we wouldn't have any cancel culture. We never had it before computers, and we wouldn't have it if computers all disappeared and all electrical forms of communication vanished. And, and that's the important part because you can find different schools of Western thinking that each believe just one quadrant alone is real. We call that quadrant absolutism. But there are people that think that all that we're communicating to these computers is our brain wave patterns. That's what's getting transferred into electrical patterns. And those are what our cancer culture really consists of it's just all these electrical communications that we can measure um objectively because they're all in the right hand quadrant but they're not i mean it's clearly not just an electrical series of impulses it's thoughts and ideas and feelings especially feelings it's a very negative feeling space and you're getting very negative about a person and you're going to just cancel them. I mean, you're going to erase their existence, which means basically you're going to attack their upper left quadrant. And you'll do that by thinking everything that their upper left quadrant has ever produced by way of a thought, you're going to deny you're going to attack it. And so your upper left quadrant is at war with their upper left quadrant. And that can occur only because there are three other quadrants that are involved. And if you're an electrical neurologist, you'll just believe it's the upper right quadrant. Some neurologists, of course, believe that the, the upper right exists only as a part of some collective state. So a single computer doesn't contribute to communication unless there's actually a computer network. Uh, and and so my computer is transmitting to your computer through an electrical network. And that's true. But that doesn't mean it's only that electrical network. It still uh, consists of a collective culture and an individual mind. And all of those have to be operating at the same time in generally the same place or nothing happens including cancel culture. Do you, uh, so you mentioned earlier about stages of development. Do you feel that 
Or do you think that someone who is further along these stages, like at a higher stage, they can more flexibly move between the different quadrants? Yes. Um, and you can actually only get a good, really good understanding of the four quadrants from the integral stage of development, which is why I call it integral psychology or integral theory. Um, and although you can you can understand the words that are used at starting at the magic to mythic stage, you can understand somebody can explain to you, well, your belief in Zeus exists in one place and while you're thinking that your brain is undergoing and you'll hear all those words and you'll sort of understand them but you won't really get how they all fit together and what they're all actually doing until you get to the rational stage and then from there you'll tend to move to a postmodern stage which is pluralistic and that's what postmodernism is is a series of pluralistic ideas um but the problem with pluralism is each of those individual ideas, the pluralistic mind can't actually fit them together into a single framework because that takes the thinking about, well, how does this piece go with this piece, go with this piece, go with this piece? And that's what integral thinking does. It's also called systemic thinking because it can think of whole systems and how each of their parts contribute to the whole system. And so, an, an integral point of view can see the validity in all perspectives, Yes. whereas previous ones can't. Yes, previous ones can sort of have a, a thought about what that might mean, but their thinking is limited to magic forms or mythic forms or simple rational forms or even pluralistic forms. Um, and pluralism, in a sense, even though it's higher than rationality, it's more fragmented than rationality. Because what it does is rationality tends to form, think in terms of universal systems. So whenever we're thinking rationally about a country, we think of it as, as a system connected with other countries and so on. Um, but pluralism, so effectively divides up rational systems into their subcomponents that it can really only picture those subcomponents as separate individual parts. And it can't figure out how they go together. But that's what rationale and that's what integral thinking does. Integral thinking looks at all the parts and immediately sees how they all fit together. So when I was looking at through all my hundred yellow pages on the floor, I fortunately was using integral thinking because I could see how they fit together, or how they didn't fit together. And that eventually gave me the inside and the outside of an individual and a collective. And those turned out to be universally present quadrants or realities. And they all intimately fit together. And that creates of itself a very integrated system of thinking. And that's why when we people use integral theory, they create things like integral art, integral history, integral biology, integral chemistry, integral philosophy, 
integral business, integral religion, integral spirituality, because they, they have categories that all fit together. You, you've even, there's even like an integral psychotherapy. There's some interesting work being done in that field too. Um, I've heard you say elsewhere, Ken, that it only takes 10% of a population to take on uh, a worldview for it to sort of to become right. widespread so that that's what happened in the in the enlightenment and right. uh with the rational the rational worldview so i i wanted to ask you we've only got 5 minutes left so just before we wrap up um how close do you think we are to reaching that 10% and what's oh, what's what's the world going to look like whenever we do we do reach it yeah well one of the first things that will happen when we reach 10% of the population capable of thinking integrally. And that might be a fairly long time because according to Jane Lovinger's model of her seven to nine stages of development, her ninth stage is what I call turquoise integral thinking. Um, and although the previous, and, and they're both part of what I call second stage, because there's a previous stage to turquoise integral that is called keel. And it's about five to 7% of the population right now. But the highest turquoise integral, fully integral stage is only 0.5% of the entire population is at an integral stage of development. So that's not encouraging. And that could take, um, in order to get to 10%, it could take 50 years. It might even take 100 years. Um, as best as we can track it, what happens now is most integral, truly integral thinkers end up being professors at universities. Um, if you take a study of the population of professors that have integral turquoise modes of thinking, you'll get um, close to 10%. Um, so, but those aren't growing at a terribly fast rate. We, I mean, professors are sort of a steady group of people. Um, and we're not seeing them skyrocket in their development. Um, so um, I'm always sort of ambivalent about how I think of the future. Um, one thing is for certain, we will get to an integral stage of development because these forces of evolution that drove, I mean, think about it. We started at an archaic stage of cellular almost development and we went from there there were forces that drove us into create a magical stage and that meant that through all of our dozen or so intelligences we have cognitive intelligence emotional intelligence aesthetic intelligence spiritual intelligence business intelligence all of those had to develop magic forms in order for us to truly evolve into a widespread worldwide magic culture. And it was a very magic culture. And we still see 
remnants of that magic culture in cave art because cave art is has numerous pictures but they're often drawn over each other because they don't understand the perspectives separate things and so all of our cave art has pictures of buffalo on top of buffalo on top of buffalo or antelopes on top of antelopes on top of antelopes and the archaeologists who discovered this, they they describe it as magical painting because they realize sort of because they themselves went through a magical stage once in their childhood. They still have vague memories of what it's like. And so they recognize magic when they see it and they actually call it, vast majority of them call it magic painting. Um, and there are caves around the world that are famous for their magical painting. And then when we, and then that same force, which we call a force of eros, which is transcend and include. Transcend means you go beyond and you make a hole that's greater than the previous hole. But this greater hole transcends and includes the previous hole. Just like atoms transcend and include quarks they actually there are real quarks inside of real atoms and then real atoms are transcended and included by real molecules but if you look at a real molecule it's just a bunch of atoms and they're all still there but some force forced them to come together and join each other to make a huge molecule and then something made those molecules come together and an absolute miracle of evolution occurred when a cell wall fell around all of those molecules. Now you could still see each of those molecules inside a cell, but a cell transcended, went beyond a molecule and it could do things that molecules couldn't. They could mitotically divide and reproduce themselves for example, where no molecule does that. And then these cells came together into multicellular animals. And each of those plants or animals could do things that individual cells couldn't. They could create photosynthesis, for example, or they developed muscular systems and they could walk and run. And of course, chase down their food and eat it. Um, and then those animals also got increasingly complex and more talented. So we go from amphibians to fish to um, reptiles that when, when the amphibians crawled on land, they formed reptiles. Uh, and the reptiles still didn't have warm blood. They were all cold-blooded. Um, and then warm-blooded mammals succeeded the reptiles. And they could also do things like fly. And um, some of them could actually form what's called paleo symbols. Or some mammals like great apes could actually form primitive types of thought processes. Um, and then that evolved into various grades of human beings. 
until here we are reflecting on every stage we've gone through because we're that sophisticated in our thought processes. And the people that thought that up were all at integral stages. They were one of the 0.5% like Darwin, who was thinking integrally. And that's why they came up with all of these various stages to the whole system of evolution. And if you think about it, that's remarkable that going through this little brain of ours are these complex mental symbols. It, it's just amazing. Um, and we're going to keep going. And when we get to integral, one of the main things that's going to happen is almost all forms of warfare will stop because warfare is generated by magic and mythic stages almost entirely. And historians have calculated that because humans spent so much time at those early stages that it actually comes out to for every one year of peace, humans have gone through 13 years of war. And that's just alarming. Well, all of that, when the integral thinking has permeated the culture, and that happens when we get 10% of the population actually at integral, that doesn't mean everybody's at integral, but somehow integral thoughts and symbols tend to permeate and just sort of sift through the whole culture. So people, most people will know, be able to describe, even if they can't fully picture it, they'll, be, they'll know what integral thinking means and they'll know that it binds things together and they won't be able to think fully integrally, but they'll be able to be aware of what it is. Um, and what it is, is it's not magic and it's not mythic. And therefore it's not warlike. It just wouldn't think of going to war with somebody. It, like you and I talking now, we, we neither one of us had a thought about going to war with the other person while we were talking because we're both integrally communicating. And it, it, there's just no thought of war at all well i i think this is a this is a hopeful note to end on i would love to arrange a, a part two at some stage because there's about a hundred things i didn't get to ask you today but um sure. if you're up for it i would love to arrange a part two and where can people find like there'll be a lot of people listening to this conversation and they'll maybe want to do a deeper dive after and like where would be a good starting point for the for getting learning more about your work uh Probably the book that I've got coming out in a month or so. It's called Finding Radical Wholeness. And what it does is it goes through the entire integral model, which in addition to waking up and growing up components, has cleaning up, opening up, and showing up components. The showing up components means showing up for all four quadrants to make sure we're using all the methodologies that we have available because each of those forms of empiricism uh, or methodology, knowing, knowledge creation, creates or sees a different type of object. 
So you have the objective interiors in the upper right. You have the subjective interiors in the upper left. You have the intersubjective interiors in the lower left and the interobjective exteriors in the lower right. And so um, it lays out each of those waking up, growing up a chapter of each of them, cleaning up. Cleaning up is, by the way, the making whole of a mind that we've otherwise split and divided and repressed various aspects that we're uncomfortable with. And this is generally a recent discovery. Most people credit Sigmund Freud with sort of really diving into this and making it a sort of scientific um, approach. Um, but he was dealing primarily with the upper left quadrant. And when we split something off from the upper left and we make it an object and push it into our unconscious, it basically becomes an it. So we'll say the anxiety, it overcomes me, or the obsession, it controls me. And Freud himself recognized the, these quadrants because he was asked, what does this new psychoanalysis of yours do? And according to his translator, Freud said, where ego, where libido was, or where id was, let ego be. And id was Latin for it. And the ego was Latin for the I. So what Freud and what and he Freud always used those terms. He never once used the term id or ego. Freud himself didn't use those terms. His translator, James Strachey, introduced those terms into Freud because they were Latin and he thought it made Freud, quote, sound more scientific if he was using a Latin term. So when what Freud said was, where it was, there I shall become. It, the split off, repressed it, the it um, becomes one, reintegrated, reunited with the I. And James Strachey translated those as where it was, their ego shall be. But what Freud said was where it was, their I shall become. Those are exactly the terms you and I have been talking about this whole time, is the it third person split off and repressed. And when they're repressed, we can only know them as because they're not part of I anymore. They become a third person, a split off, a he, she, they, them, or it, which is the general term that we use for our unconscious processes. Like I said, we say the anxiety, it overcomes me, or the fear, it overtakes me, or the hunger, I can't control it, or my lust states, I can't control it. Um, and so Freud founded this methodology of introspecting and looking within, and that's a very important methodology. We said introspection is how we know the upper left, and that's what Freud himself introduced was a form of random associative introspection. Say whatever comes into your mind. But that means look into your mind and see what's coming into it. And so that is a form of introspection. Um, so 
we go the book goes through cleaning up, which is the term I use for any forms of psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. We generally talk about cleaning up our mess, our its. Um, and then opening up, which is a wholeness that's created when we recognize that we have multiple intelligences, not just cognitive thinking, but we have emotional intelligence, spiritual intelligence, aesthetic intelligence, moral intelligence, and all of those think in different ways. And so they're called multiple intelligences. And psychologists generally say that there are between eight and 12 multiple intelligences. But if you spend time just reading through a list of them, and then each time you read a type of intelligence, you look for it in yourself. So when you read about aesthetic intelligence, you realize that you can look at things as being beautiful and some things are more beautiful than another and you'll go through stages of recognizing that beauty or spiritual stages the tenzen oxherding pictures are classic spiritual stages of development as are any of the stages christian mystics come up with uh, and those all most all trace back to plato who introduced the transcendental sphere of forms or archetypal ideas and they come down and project themselves to create objects that we know by naming them basically um and so uh and and then it goes through showing up and then each time after it introduces a chapter introducing each of these times of creating wholeness it talks about a radical wholeness or a big wholeness or a full wholeness. And that's when we bring together and realize we have the capacities to create waking up wholeness, growing up wholeness, opening up wholeness, cleaning up wholeness, and a showing up wholeness. And we've talked today about waking up and growing up and showing up. And so maybe next time we can talk about cleaning up and opening up, and then we'll have a complete, full, big wholeness. I'd love to. I'd love to. And I can't wait to read the book as well. So um, I'll be in touch about arranging part two for this. And okay. hopefully hopefully I can get the book before then and I'll have a good read and then I'll plenty to, to ask you about. All right. So, Ken, it's been an absolute pleasure. I want to wish you the best with your continued efforts to get into integral theory to the 10% in the population. Thank you. And we'll talk soon. All right. Okay. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear the full version, you can do so with the Weekend University Premium Membership. This gets you access to your master library of over five years of psychology conferences, including over 230 talks and interviews with the world's leading psychologists, professors, and authors, unlimited CPD certification, transcripts, quizzes, premium passes for our annual conference, online courses with Richard Schwartz and Deb Dana, and more. The cost is 97 pounds for one year, which breaks down at around 27p per day. The best bit is you can try it out for 30 days completely risk-free as all orders come with a 100% money-back guarantee. If you're interested, please go to twumembers.com for more information.